Alex Beese of the Asbury Park Press, filled with year-end thoughts, wrote on December 19th, It's so tempting to just give up. Living in a world caught in perpetual chaos and peril, sometimes it all feels like too much. There are pressures that come from your job, your society, your government, your religion, your family, and especially yourself. The hopes and dreams never realized, the paths not taken, the potential squandered, the infinite what-ifs. We've all heard the call, the nagging urge to take all that confusion, frustration, and doubt and pile it together like so much seasoning on an everything bagel that's both mightily cosmic and baked into each one of us. It can be all too appealing to embrace the empty carbohydrates of despair and nihilism, the comfort of oblivion, or we might add, enjoy the next exciting action-adventure film for a brief respite from the daily trials and tribulations of our lives as humans. Words of Alex Baez, writing about the day-to-day, one-darn-thing-after-another world we sometimes live in. In the meantime, George Ellis of Scientific American reports on an extraordinary claim that's captivated cosmologists, one that says the expanding universe we see around us is not the only one, that billions of other universes are out there too. There's not one universe, there is a multiverse. In this view, not only is our planet one among many, but even our entire universe is insignificant on the cosmic scale of things. It's just one of countless universes. It seems makers of some of those entertaining action films we just mentioned have seized on the concept of the multiverse recently as a very cool idea to play with using all the cinematic wizardry at their disposal. And it turns out that Marvel released a movie this year with the title Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Bees tells us in Madness, though, the multiverse is reduced to a gimmick deployed for cheap pops, allowing director Sam Raimi the thrill of having beloved characters killed off in gruesome fashion and then moving on before ever having to deal with the consequences. As it happens, there's another movie from this year that uses the multiverse concept and one, we're told, that leaves Marvel's multiverse marvels in the dust. That film is titled Everything Everywhere All at Once. And in the face of a bizarre, indecipherable existence in a boundless expanse of time and space, the movie argues that our smallest actions and the motivations behind them are what matter most. To acknowledge the utter absurdity of life, the universe and everything, and then still act with love regardless is profoundly brave. It's heroic. It's everything. Alex Bees continues, the filmmakers combine science fiction, martial arts, slapstick comedy, and adventure in their heady proceedings while keeping their story firmly rooted in matters of the heart. And none of this has been lost on Alan Austin and Patrick Hamilton, faculty members at Misericordia University in Dallas and co-authors of a recent study titled All New, All Different, 
a history of race and the American superhero, exploring the relationship between racial attitudes and the evolution of the superhero in America over the last 80 years. They have a regular podcast on popular culture they call Even More Mashed Up. And as 2022 draws to a close, we ask them to share some of their observations about the multiplex or what was found there in 2022. And of course, they'll talk about the multiverse too. Dr. Austin joined me in the studio and we connected by phone with Dr. Hamilton on the West Coast. And we began with their origin story of sorts. We came to pop culture in large part because we both grew up immersed in pop culture and and real fans of pop culture, not just sort of passive consumers of it, but serious fans. And we had a conversation at work one day about comic books in particular, both of which we had collected assiduously as kids and discovered not only kind of a shared interest in pop culture, but a shared academic interest in popular culture and the way that we might examine it to better understand the world in which we live. Your interest in pop culture expands and it includes films most especially. Absolutely, absolutely. On our our podcast, Even More Mashed Up, we spend a lot of time looking at pop culture from lots of different angles and looking at lots of different delivery methods as well. So we look at films, we look at comic books, we look at TV shows, we look at what people are binging. We try to, to see what's popular and what kind of intersects with our interests and then have a weekly conversation of about an hour where we do... I guess what only we can do to it, which is to kind of tear it apart in our own unique way. Patrick, you're out on the West Coast right now. Is there any sense that you have in any way that things are a little bit different there? The things you saw on the newsstand maybe when you were coming out of the airport, that sort of thing? I don't know about necessarily different from here, but one of the things that did strike me as I was walking through both the Newark and the Portland airport, you know, they've got their, their various airport bookstores. And both of them had very prominently on display. Penguin Random House has recently done a couple of collections of of Marvel Comics as part of their Penguin's Classics line. They've got a Black Panther collection. They've got a, a Captain America collection. And as I was walking by the airport bookstores in both Newark and Portland, they had the, the Black Panther book as one of their featured titles of the month. And that and that's just something that I would never have expected, not even ten years ago or, or much longer than that, kind of seeing in a airport bookshop a prominently displayed comic book collection amongst the, the various novels and nonfiction works that are being promoted. It it's really, I think, quite remarkable how all consuming superhero popular culture has become in the last couple of decades. I think if you stepped back 30 years and you and you said this is what the pop culture landscape will look like, people would have thought that an impossibility. And yet, as Patrick says, there it is in the airport. It it is ubiquitous. You can't you can't really move around American culture without running into superheroes at every turn. Yeah, well, if you if you had told 13 year old me that in my lifetime, Avengers, which when I was a kid was sort of the the second tier at best kind of Marvel title. If you had told me they would be like dominating the the pop culture landscape within my lifetime, I would have laughed at you. And that there would be a show dedicated to my favorite superhero, Hawkeye, I would have laughed even further. So yeah, it's amazing to kind of see how what used to be this very sort of niche hobby of of mine and Alan's has now become so mainstream. And and as Alan said, kind of all-consuming Yeah, and so important for us to study, I think, because one of the reasons Patrick and I undertook the class to begin with was the idea that that much of what we learn about the world, much of how we come to know the world, we learn through pop culture. 
without realizing it, that pop culture is selling us not only t-shirts and shoes, but selling us ideologies, teaching us how to think about the world, teaching us kind of right and wrong, and just sort of building in a, a base set of assumptions that we carry with us that we don't spend much time thinking about. And I think one of the reasons Patrick and I started teaching the class, and one of the reasons Patrick and I wrote the book, was to try to demonstrate the ways in which this pop culture that often seems kind of throwaway and not particularly important actually has a tremendous influence on us. It's especially influential, I think, because we don't imagine that we're being influenced when we're sitting in the theater watching, you know, everything, everywhere, all at once, or watching Black Panther, Wakanda forever. We turn off the critical apparatus because we're just having a good time. Yeah, it's one of my favorite moments, particularly in the comic class and any of the, the classes that we teach with popular culture in them, when the students sort of come at some point and say, I used to be able to just watch stuff and enjoy it. And now that I've taken this class, I can't help but be thinking about, you know, race and gender and sexuality, all these things that we talk about in the class and sort of, of getting them to kind of see the way in which, as Alan said, that they are being sold not just products, but also ideas. What about the growth, though? Exponential, it sounds like. What's at the root of that? I think that from the first day that Superman kind of appeared on the American consciousness, the, it's 1938, imagine a world that is not recovered from the Great Depression and a world that's really teetering on the edge of global war for the second time in a couple of decades. It's, it's a, such an uncomfortable place to be. And I think when Superman arrives, he arrives and speaks to Americans in really fundamental ways, speaking about who are we? what defines who we are, and why should we be optimistic in a world that really has presented us with very little cause for optimism recently. And so I think when Superman and then Batman and all that follow come, they become these sort of American mythological heroes, that that we see ourselves in our heroes. And we've discovered, you know, I've written elsewhere, especially in the aftermath of 9-11, that superheroes provided us a kind of comfort and a kind of language to try to navigate, again, that world that suddenly seemed very unpredictable and very dangerous in ways that we hadn't imagined since the fall of the, the Berlin Wall. We'd seemed to kind of reach the end of history and, and it was all going to be kind of, you know, pretty from here on out. And it, it wasn't. And I think superheroes dominate in part because they speak to our most harrowing terrors in the world, but also they continue to speak about or speak to us about what we might be. And Patrick, how about your take on the fact that when you were 13, you couldn't have imagined walking through the airports and seeing the Black Panther collection on the shelves? Sort of building off what Alan said, you know, I think for a long time, the kind of quintessential American mythological figure was the cowboy and sort of of the Western. And, and you can trace the roots of superhero comics and superhero fiction back to kind of, of the era of the cowboy. But I think in a lot of ways, the superhero does speak in a lot of ways to a sort of 21st century and, and specifically sort of post 9-11 America and a, a kind of globalized America, as opposed to one that, that, you know, the cowboy is very much kind of contained within itself and very much an expression of manifest destiny and and the frontier myth kind of within america the superhero is a lot of that kind of expanding outside of america and and acting on sort of a a global scale i mean you've got the first iron man movie where he's a arms dealer um working on a a global scale i think you kind of see that that iron man kind of becomes 
and then the superhero through him sort of becomes a figure to parallel, I think, the cowboy within American mythology. But there's a, there's a real danger in that, I think, because the way in which the cowboy mythologized who we are allowed us to look past misdeeds that kind of built us into who mm -hmm. we are. And the same thing is true, I think, of superheroes, that uncritically accepted superheroes become a way for us to dodge hard questions about who we are in the world, our place in the world, and maybe how other people imagine us in the world. So there has been a shift. Things have changed in terms of the makeup of the cast of characters in these stories. Oh, for sure. Almost to the point where they're inconceivably dense and hard to follow. I, I try to imagine being not a superhero fan and just showing up at the Cineplex to watch a superhero movie today. It, it, it has to be almost completely mystifying. Not to, not to Patrick, of course. Like, Patrick has this entire canon completely sorted in his brain. But I, I think of myself as somebody who's interested in superheroes. And I'll sit down and be trying to puzzle out exactly how we got to where we are at this, at this juncture. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the things I'm I'm proudest of, of, you know, being here on the West Coast and, and visiting my sister is the other night we were looking for some sort of Christmas-themed movie or something to watch. And I said, oh, we should watch Hawkeye because that's, that's a Christmas-themed show. And we literally watched the entire series in two days, all six episodes. And my sister really enjoyed it, but then I, I came to find out later she's maybe seen the first couple of Iron Man films, but that's it. But she was able to follow the Hawkeye series completely and afterwards she's like wait a minute there's other stuff with hawkeye and i'm like yes there is a lot of other stuff with hawkeye so it was kind of interesting because i expected to be fielding a lot of questions during the series of like who is this what is this what's going on but she someone who's who's not nearly as versed in the mcu as i am was still able to to follow the series just fine and and enjoy it so i i was thinking about in terms of how dense it is marvel has introduced the idea of multiverses so there's not just one universe of superheroes but there are sort of an infinite number of universes floating around out there which makes for a lot of complications i was thinking today about multiverses and the movie everything everywhere all at once which is also a movie that plays with the idea of a multiverse but does so in a way that's not sort of freighted down with all of the MCU baggage. And you mean Marvel Comic Universe? Yeah, yeah, sorry. The Marvel Cinematic Universe is the MCU. And I think a film like Everything Everywhere All at Once, because it's not so encumbered by the expectations of the superhero genre and just the baggage of how many Marvel films have there been now? 30-odd, 40 films? Yeah, Patrick could give you a precise number. But I, I thought, there's a film, Everything Everywhere All at Once, that really uses the multiverse to kind of wrestle with issues of immigrant identity in, in really interesting ways, whereas perhaps Marvel is using it more as just a way to tell stories that allow for lots of different versions of the same superhero, which comic book geeks are big fans of. Yeah, I mean, I think, in, I think that's a fair comparison in that in the MCU, the multiverse sort of mainly exists just on a, a, the, the level of a story, that it, it's a device in order to allow them to bring in different versions of uh, characters. So in, in Spider-Man No Way Home, you're able to have all three of the film Spider-Mans together at once, Tom Holland, Andrew Garfield, and uh, Tobey Maguire. And so it sort of feeds into that, that nostalgia, whereas, yeah, everything, everywhere, all at once, which I think is one of the thinking about kind of, of films of the last year sort of dealing with issues of politics and race and identity, I think is, is a definite high mark. And, and is using the multiverse more as a thematic device. They're using the multiverse to talk about 
issues of of race and identity and sort of of fragmented identities and and the struggle between cultures for Chinese and other Asian Americans that yeah the MCU just quite simply is not using it for that right and i think i think everything everywhere all at once also does a, a really beautiful job of telling an a Chinese American an Asian American an immigrant story but mm-hmm. also making it a story that everybody can relate to like reminding us that there is a common humanity and a, and a shared set of experiences across Americans that we often don't think about. We spend more time separating people into various sort of, you know, identity-based boxes as opposed to thinking about what unites us. And there, there was a real power in it. I agree with Patrick. If there's a movie that you haven't seen in the past year that you ought to, it's everything, everywhere, all at once, which is, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a beautifully complicated and yet thoughtful movie about the human experience. Yeah, and and that's one of the things to sort of piggyback off of Alan. One of the things I think is brilliant about the film is the way it works both as a film exploring Asian American identity and immigration within the U.S., but also sort of resonates on a more generally human level thematically as well in terms of what it's sort of saying about how how we should function in relationship to one another or in relationship to a world that sometimes seems both mean and meaningless at the same time. And, the, and the, again, the, the experiences that we might share. So I, like, we're sitting here in northeastern Pennsylvania, which is a region of the country that remains deeply marked and influenced by its immigrant past. You, you can't drive through Wilkesbury without seeing literally every block markers of that, that ethnic identity and the way that it it matters to us. And I think everything, everywhere, all at once is about a Chinese-American family. But it's also about the trauma of immigration. It reminds us that, that we remember immigration in this kind of romantic way of making your way to a place where streets were paved with gold and, and, and building your way in the world. I think we all forget the, the trauma of leaving your home country and really the trauma of the people who are left behind because we see the main character's father in China as well. And so it's this this wonderfully told story about the trauma and the, the challenges created by that, that separation. And it seems like in that setting that it's just a Chinese-American story, but as an immigration historian, I don't see it that way. I see it as a story that almost all of us as Americans share. Almost all of us, anybody, anybody who has that immigrant background can relate in some way or another to the story that's being told there. Yeah, and, and everything, everywhere, all at once, thinking about that idea of, of trauma and, and intergenerational trauma that exists in the film, that's something that we saw in any number of films, you know, in the last year or so. Encanto very much deals with that, with that theme. Turning Red deals with that theme. And, and so there is sort of, there's something in the air or something is starting to be brought out about this intergenerational trauma, and, and in particular within immigrant and and ethnic populations. What about the Marvel releases this past year? Oh, that's a tough one. It's been a rough (laughs) year for Marvel, I would have to say. You can hear Um, the the disappointment in Patrick's voice. Yeah, what what they refer to as phase four of the MCU, which just ended, which is kind of the films and and Disney Plus that came out basically after Endgame. To say it's been a mixed bag, I think, is is probably an, an understatement. There's been more... For me, there's been more that's been underwhelming than impressive. There's been things like going as far back as WandaVision that was a high mark. I think the recent She-Hulk series 
was a uh, a high mark um, for me. I thought the Hawkeye series was a hard mark. Everything else was was kind of a little bit lackluster, and I and I think even even something as successful as Black Panther: Wakanda Forever didn't resonate with me quite as much as, as I was hoping it would. I would agree with Patrick in that general assessment. And if if Patrick's saying that, Marvel should be wary because <laughs> like, he's predisposed to 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 love this stuff. Wakanda Forever was a really interesting film, I think, in a lot of ways. But it fell victim for me to a problem that I kind of alluded to earlier. It's trying to do so much in it's it's got a monstrously long runtime, but it's not nearly long enough for all of the stories it wants to tell. Um, I think the worst kind of review is the review that says this is the movie it should have been instead of the movie it is. But if I were going to be that bad kind of reviewer, I think what we needed was a movie about mourning. We've lost Chadwick Boseman, the very charismatic star that kind of brought Black Panther to life, but then tragically passed away. We needed some some space, and I think that opened up opportunities for storytelling. But the the Marvel formula, as it's kind of solidified over time, provides less space for storytelling because you need more time for punching stuff. And that that would be my frustration. Obviously, any film about the Black Panther is inherently going to be political in some way. It just the, the character was created in the '60s as part of kind of the political ferment that was happening at the time. He has developed historically over time, kind of reflecting the ways in which the civil rights movement has ebbed and flowed in this country. And there, there's certainly some sense of radical politics in here. There's some Haitian revolution references and whatnot, but for the most part, it's just overweighted with plot and story, I think, to the detriment of meaning. Whereas, again, everything, everywhere, all at once, because it's not encumbered by all of those expectations, I think was was better able to both be really entertaining and thought-provoking and to push us to think about what did Patrick talk about, meanness and meaninglessness, and how do we combat that in the world in which we live today? Yeah, I think for me, everything that Alan said about Black Panther Wakanda Forever, I, I agree with. The The other thing that I would add to it is, on the one hand, I give them credit for the way in which they introduce the figure of Namor and, and sort of his indigenous kind of Mayan community, or representing an indigenous Mayan community. I, I give them credit for bringing that in, but the way they brought it in, I found very problematic, particularly in comparison to, to the Wakandans, because you find out that the vibranium that the Wakandans have had access to since, you know, forever, Namor's people have also had access to. And, and the Wakandans, on one hand, have built up this entirely fantastic technological uh, marvel, whereas Namor and his people, they're, they're troped in all kinds of images of primitivity and savagery, which unfortunately are playing into stereotypes we have about Latino and Hispanic communities. And so there's a lot of ways that, for all that, I'll give the film credit for bringing in another representation of indigenous peoples. The the film ultimately, I think, falls prey to a lot of primitivist stereotypes that, that those communities often have trouble getting away from. One of the one of the things that that bothers me because I'd like to think of myself as an optimist ultimately about what we might build in in life and in the world we live in is that Wakanda Forever spends most of its time pitting these two groups against each other two groups that in many ways have these real and important claims to oppression and mistreatment historically spend more time battling each other than they do larger systemic forces that oppose them 
Yeah, I think the, the kind of along the same lines and 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 similar to everything everywhere all at once. Um, the other thing this year that I was really impressed by in terms of how it dealt with issues of of politics and colonialism, imperialism, and indigenous populations uh, was the Star Wars Andor series on Disney Plus, which I think did a, did provoke a lot of the same kind of deeper thinking as as everything everywhere all at once does, as, as Alan just got done saying. I think Andor is is actually a, a, a pretty brilliant series in a lot of ways. Not the least mm-hmm. of which is it's a Star Wars series, but you don't see a lot of lightsabers and all of the usual like trappings of Star Wars. And again, not that I well, I, it's too late. Like I love everything, everywhere, all at once. That's a movie. <laughs> it's a movie that really encourages us to rethink that because one of one of the the lessons that evelyn the main character learns is that it might not just be through punching it might not just be through violence that we can solve our problems but that we need to find ways to understand other people and meet their needs if we want to build a world that's a more cooperative world and i i I understand that i'm asking too much of superhero popular culture to leave to leave all the fisticuffs out of it but i think everything everywhere all at once leaves us with at least more important questions to ask about building something better in the world. And I think if pop culture is really going to influence us and pop culture is going to build the way we understand the world, I really like the idea of people going to see a film like that that gets them to ask some, some deeper questions and maybe rethink what they think they understand. Dr. Alan Austin, professor of history, and Dr. Patrick Hamilton, professor of English at Misericordia University in Dallas, Pennsylvania, just outside Wilkes-Barre. Dr. Hamilton was on the West Coast and connecting with Dr. Austin and me in the studio here at WVIA. We had a chance to talk at the end of the year about their perceptions of what has been taking place on the level of pop culture in the course of 2022. They are co-authors of a recent study titled All New, All Different, A History of Race and the American Superhero, issued by the University of Texas Press. They have a regular podcast on popular culture, and it's titled Even More Mashed Up, and you can find it at most of the places where you get your podcasts. But one of the clearest places is mashedup.podbean. Dot com mashed up dot pod bean b e a n dot com <laughs>